0: And my view is that if we do, if we make those four policy responses and we do it in Trump time, which is, is to say this week in a matter of days, bring the House back, get them in session, uh, we're going to be just fine. But, but this is the time uh, where, where America is going to band together and we have to work together and, and we have to do things quickly. We can't, uh, we, we can't fiddle around.
1: That was Peter Navarro, Dr. Peter Navarro, former senior White House official, that was on dated, by the way, March 16th of 2020. That was a Monday, almost two years ago from when I'm recording this, talking about what is going on and trying to get PPE out there and stimulus and everything that was leading up to the beginning of the pandemic of COVID-19 back in March of 2020. Well, now here we are nearly two years later, and we're still doing that. <laughs> we're still putting masks on children and, uh, according to the CDC now it's okay to give a vaccine to your 5 year old even though there's not really a lot of testing and but it, you know it's okay so we've really lost our minds in the last 2 years and peter navarro here in his book in trump time a journal of america's plague year is documenting what was going on from the beginning to the end of 2020 from you have the impeachment but the economy's pretty solid to covid and meeting dr fauci All the way to the election in early November of 2020. So he documents this in his book in Trump Time. So uh, go check that out. And honestly, I could have talked to him for hours. I could have done 17 podcasts with this guy, but he had another interview after that. So I was only able to get about 20 minutes out of him uh, until he had to run to promote his book in another interview. But I did record another interview, and it's a twofer for today. How do you like that? Look what I do for you fine folks here on this Check Your Brain podcast is that uh, I have J.D. Vance, who is running for Senate in Ohio. And we just kind of talk about the issues of the day and uh, whether it's the the wokeness of the military to— Uh, response with the pandemic and everything and uh, things that are happening statewide in Ohio. He's also the author of Hillbilly Elegy, which was turned into a major motion picture starring Amy Adams and Glenn Close. So, honestly, I, I did like the movie, so go check that out. If you want to, but the book came out and it's weird how his trajectory, J.D. Vance's trajectory re- went from he's the one who's really given us a peek behind the curtain of the Trump voter to this guy needs to be castigated out. We don't like Trump voters. They're all racist. They're all this and that. And so that's one of the interesting things about the how J.D. Vance's career has kind of taken off in the last five years from being he's this to he's now this. That's really interesting because he hasn't changed all that much. Uh, But he is home. He is living in Ohio again, and uh, he is running for Senate. So you'll get a chance to hear that interview coming up. Um, Let's see. I think around the – it'll be about the 22-minute mark, maybe 23-minute mark. That will be on there. I can put that in the timestamps when I – we have, uh, have it on this podcast so go check that out Peter Navarro and JD Vance if you want more of those interviews and if you want them in a timelier manner go uh, check out my podcast on Patreon please subscribe if you haven't already to the free ones but then I also have just for $5 a month you get all these podcasts plus several more per week so you basically get it's $5 a month is the cost of one beer and it depends on where you go because maybe the podcast is actually cheaper than the beer especially the beer I like it's usually around 7 or $8 as opposed to 4 or $5. So the co- it's either, let's see, could I get a lot of content here or could I get, uh, you know, uh, another IPA? I don't know. That's your choice. It's up to you. I'm not going to tell you how to spend your money. But go check that out. It's the Check Your Brain podcast at patreon.com slash Tony But in the meantime, here we have Peter Navarro and J.D. Vance. I'm here with somebody that uh, for the past, well, many decades, if you wanted to know anything about what's going on in China, whether it was talking about the coming China wars, death by China, he's an author, he's an economist, he's been a teacher, and his name is Dr. Peter Navarro. And we're going to talk a little bit about China, but kind of indirectly, because he has a new book out. It's called In Trump Time, a Journal of America's Plague Year, and talking about the year that was in 2020 that began in January, talking about this ridiculous first impeachment, in my opinion. Then America gets it by March. And then ever since then, in the last, well, almost two years now, the world has kind of been turned upside down. And we're going to talk to uh, Peter Navarro here. And Peter, thanks for coming on here today. And uh, I guess, uh, I mean, you're somebody, you've been with the president, you were a former senior White House official with uh, the President Trump since the beginning. And I guess talk about what went into this book, because I- I'm sure that you probably have enough material to do about at least a dozen more books on what happened in uh, 2020.
0: Yeah. Well, I think what's uh, what's semi-unique about uh, the In Trump Time book, among the ones that are coming out, is I did a daily journal. Um uh, Channeled my inner Haldeman, uh, who was like one of the first people to keep a, a detailed White House journal, and beginning early 2017, uh, every night I went home and wrote things down. So this stuff is not from memory; it's it's from from the the actual journal um, itself. And I di- I kept the uh, in Trump time journal because I, I, I knew I was going to be in some way part of history. But I also uh, early on saw that there were a lot of people in the White House, in the administration, who were actually disloyal and against the president. And I wanted to hold those folks accountable for whatever whatever uh, mistakes or problems uh, we, we had. So, fast forward to um, the last year of the administration, and um, this is where the in Trump time book uh, focuses on and it's interesting i met uh the president first through one of my my first china book it was 2006 the coming china wars interestingly enough i predicted in the coming china wars in 2006 that communist china would cause a viral pandemic that would kill millions Mm -hmm. And and the reason why that's important is that the book begins with what I call the Red Wedding chapter. The Trump Time book begins chapter one with me sitting in the East Wing of the White House in the audience. The president's on stage with Chinese Vice Premier Liu Ha. And he's surrounded by Pence, Mnuchin and our officials and these Chinese so-called diplomats. Right. And I'm sitting there thinking. I'm in a cold sweat i rarely sweat but that day i was in a cold sweat because i had been watching the crematory in wuhan burning corpses over time i heard about this virus i had made that prediction in 2006. i'm sitting there looking at the stage thinking what are these chinese communist bastards know that we don't about the virus could they be infected and if so why'd they shake my hand last night
1: hmm.
0: and why are they sitting so close to the president and most importantly i said to myself could this be a bioweapon that's intentionally designed to take down a sitting president who was the only one to ever stand up to the Chinese? And 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 the, the the in Trump time book is designed to answer those questions and more. And Fauci would would quickly enter the in Trump time book uh, as as arguably uh, the worst james bond villain ever um in chapter two because look if there's anybody listening to this and you still think tony fauci is a good guy do me a favor read in trump time and if you get to the end of it and you still think he's a good guy rather than a sociopath who killed millions of people i'll give you your money back but i meet fauci in chapter two in the situation room never met him before didn't know he walked on water didn't know he was a saint. Didn't know he was a darling of the left. And I walk in in this, the famous, iconic Situation Room. And the president had tasked me with convincing the China Coronavirus Task Force to support the ban on travel from China. Okay, the boss wanted to pull down the flights from China, and he was getting resistance from that task force. So I go in there. Mulvaney's at one end of the table doing his chief of staff bs i got pompeo's guy on my left shoulder across the ways i got redfield the bumbling cdc director and azar um the secretary of health and human services i know all those guys but this guy is sitting at high noon across from me symbolic as it would turn out little round glasses on and i'm uh, like two minutes in Two minutes in, I'm in a shouting match with this sob, and he's <laughs> he's insisting. He said in, he's insisting that travel bans don't work. I described him as like Flo Bear's parrot over yelling. Travel bans don't work in that thick Brooklyn accent. I'm thinking to myself, you know, like Butch, Butch, butch asking, Like, who are these guys, right? It's like, and um, I realized looking into his eyes that a. He thought he was a lot smarter than he was, which is always dangerous. And B, he was going to hurt the boss and this country. And uh, the, <laughs> the, the decision that the boss made to pull down those flights, save millions of lives, Fauci was dead set against it. And that was just the beginning of many showdowns I would have with Fauci, both publicly and in scenes like that in the Situation Room. And every time I got up in his grill, he was wrong, I was right, and his decisions were going to cost American lives and eventually help cost the presidency. And, and That that's guy wh- is evil.
1: And that's where a lot of people on the right were a little bit critical. Even the hardcore uh, President Trump fans were saying, uh, it was i've been hearing I'll hear this to this day. They say, well, you know the one big mistake I heard the President Trump did is keep. Anthony Fauci had not fired yep. him when he did. Yep. But uh, yep. is, there, is there truth to that, or is there a little bit more that we don't know as to why? Was there a lot of red tape as to why they couldn't fire him, or was this just because of the election year and it would look bad because at the time, Fauci looked like John the Baptist for a lot of these uh, people the- and <laughs> people out there? Yeah. Um,
0: well, I, I, there's, a, there's a much more textured and granular rendition of that in the in Trump time book. But the shorter answer is uh, that I urged the boss twice and early on to fire Fauci, you know, kill that baby in the crib to use that crude Winston Churchill expression. um, When he was talking about Hitler and the Nazis, I think it's apt in this case. Um, But look, I was a trade guy, right boss looks at me as a trade guy. And I don't blame him for not not uh, listening to my advice. Uh, because he had all the healthcare bureaucrats, Azar, Hahn at the FDA, you know, when he rolled in. Uh, you had uh, Redfield at the CDC, Collins at the NIH. And then and then I think the the fault, I think, also was on the, the, our our uh, chief of staff uh, and the press team within the White House because they didn't have the cojones, as they say, down south. Uh, to fire Fauci, they thought the blowback would be too much. So they let him stay on too long, become too big. The left wing, Zucker at CNN, who has a really light into Zucker at CNN, with blood on his hands as well. Um, they they made him a god so that they could make Trump a devil. And therein lies the interim time tale. But I'm telling you, that guy needs to go. If that guy, Fauci needs, needs to be in jail, mm-hmm. not getting the highest salary of a government bureaucrat. He is, he is evil, that dude. And I've looked him in the eye, and I, I was the only guy in the administration who, who stood up to him. If you just go back and look at the historical record, if you remember that, I was I was the only guy who took him head on, and I was right every single time.
1: What's interesting about the COVID year, the year of 2020, was how they said, well, President Trump did not take COVID seriously. He allowed so many people to die. He didn't promote mask wearing. When in reality, and as you know, as you put in the book and you have in your notes, that in late January and at the State of the Union, while they're going through this impeachment process over, is it Russia? No, it's Ukraine, some odd call to the Ukraine and as that's happening President Trump is mentioning that oh there's this coronavirus from China that we need to watch out for then the response was because he said China virus that means it's that Trump derangement syndrome that TDS that we've heard about where it's hey wait a second Trump said this so we got to do the opposite so Trump is blaming China for this virus so go out and hug Chinese people go out into Chinatown and eat dim sum go be irresponsible and everything and it was the opposite. So then, a, about a month and a half later, when Fauci and Burks and all of these other uh, longtime government bureaucrats, these unelected bureaucrats take over. He is in one of these situations where now he has to start defending what he did at the beginning. And now everybody else is jumping on that, including Republicans. Like in my state of Ohio, Mike DeWine was one of the first people to say, we need to shut down, shut everything down. The restaurants, the bars, the concert venues, everything needs to shut down and to credit what President Trump did is he left that up to the states as opposed to what Joe Biden wants to do now, where he wants federal mandates all across the board and using OSHA and other, uh, you know, bureaucratic means to do so.
0: Well, I got you through the first two chapters of the In Trump Time book. The, th- the third chapter begins a set of chapters which address the the what I call the lost February narrative, right? The lost February narrative was the criticism by by the left and, and some in conservative circles that the boss didn't do enough in February early on in the pandemic um, to take the threat seriously. And that's just 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 wrong. And I take you in the in Trump Time Book into my office on February 9th where I will begin with a set of a dozen memos that I'll write on behalf of the president during the month of February. And the first one I write uh, is on the vaccine. And I say in the memo, very short memo, I say, look, if we get off the dime and quit screwing around here, we could have a vaccine as early as October or November. Okay, now think about that. That's February, I'm predicting We could have a vaccine by october or november if we move in trump time quickly and that was a third of the time it normally takes right and so um there's a fascinating part of the book where i explain exactly how we did it we did hit that mark but fauci was one of the guys who both publicly and privately attacked me for making that prediction but The other memos dealt with everything from getting remdesivir out quickly so it could help save even the president's life. At one point, it was about how we were on the ball and getting our personal protective equipment uh, that that we needed. Uh, And it was about the the monoclonal antibodies. I mean, I'm writing in early February about the need for monoclonal antibodies, if people don't know what those are, that, that was like one of the important therapeutics that, that are now saving American lives. So my point is simply that even though the president uh, publicly was trying to reassure the American public that, that, that we were going to get through this privately, he was deeply concerned and we were taking every possible step. And The people who led him now, I think here's really the buried lead in the punchline, and I, I draw this out in the Interim Time book. It's like when I was sitting in the Oval with the president, and Azar and Redfield and Hahn and Fauci and Burks were there, and the boss looks at him and says, "Yo, what do we do? They had nothing. They had spent their years in government, years in government. Their job was to get ready for a pandemic, and they had not done their job. And the buck stopped the, on the Resolute desk in the Oval, but that was a, it was a bad buck because of those people didn't do their job. And it was all the worse because they, they turned on him in their public appearances, and shame on them.
1: And here we are almost two years later, forcing vaccines on five-year-olds and masking kids for eight, nine hours a day. It's unbelievable. Uh, To to wrap up the conversation, Peter, I I really appreciate you being on here. Uh, You know, you talk about the plague here and really the plague was almost just beginning because then by November, the loss happened that President Trump ends up losing. Joe Biden ends up becoming president, even though no one showed up to any of his rallies, that there was no momentum behind him. His uh, vice president, uh, it was is very unlikable even to this day, and you just go forward and. People are wondering about 2022, 2024. Ron DeSantis in Florida. Is President Trump going to win uh, run again? And if he does, will he win the support? Where do you? I guess where do you see now since then the uh, the faith in the Republican Party, or at least anybody who leans conservative? Because we've definitely seen this split between the Republican, the neocon voter, and kind of everybody else who says, "Yeah, I don't want critical race theory in my schools." Yeah, no, I don't want to learn about about gender theory and all this other stuff, uh, you're starting to see this uh, a groundswell where even people who were previously Democrats are starting to rise up and saying, okay, wait a second, I can't get with all this other woke stuff that's happening on the left. And they're starting to look again at the Republicans and whether it's DeSantis or Trump, that eh, boy, maybe they had the right idea. So, where do you see the momentum uh, going on right now?
0: Well, one of the big reveals in the In Trump Time book uh, is about how michael richard pence betrayed donald john trump on january 6th and just and just as a starter um i'm going to predict that by december uh fauci will be fired and pence's career will be over uh, there's no there's no excuse for what pence did but the big reveal in the book is why he did it and and it it it, it reveals a man of of weakness rather than strength um, I am adamant about not talking about 2024 or even 2022 until we get to the bottom of what happened on November 3rd, 2020, and that's a lot of what the In Trump Time book is about. And, and the, the last part of the book talks about what happened in the battleground states: Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Nevada. Um, that that just stinks high heaven and we can't have a country where over half of the people think a presidential election was stolen and by the way if there's anybody out there who who is like high and mighty and thinks oh we have great elections here and it was all fair you just remembered kennedy stole it from nixon and kennedy stole it from nixon in 1960 using what's called ghost voters and uh it took decades decades for the truth to come out on that and in, in the interim we heard the same kind of crap we're hearing today um for, from the left defending that's that theft but we need to my point is we need to get to the bottom of what now happened on november 3rd and january 6th before yep. we move on to talking about twenty-two and twenty-four,
1: I went to bed at one thirty in the morning on November, on the day of the election, and I woke up at three because I have morning radio to do. So I slept an hour yeah. and a half. In that hour and a half, look what changed. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's. Yeah. I, I, yes. I, looked, I looked over at my wife who was working at the time, and I said, uh, "I said they're really doing this right now." And. To question it, yeah. I mean, forget about it, but you can answer, yeah, get yeah. some of those questions answered in Trump Time, a Journal of America's Plague Year by Dr. Peter, Peter Navarro. Uh, hey. Books available on Amazon. Where can we go to find uh, all of your work? Is it all on Amazon or is it on your own um, website?
0: You can go to uh, PeterNavarro.com. The last thing I'll tell you about the book is that the audio book is really cool uh, for those people who prefer that to the printed page because um I, I it's it's actually a dramatic production in the sense i have people who appear in the in Trump time book actually read their parts right so so bannon steve bannon uh has a great little cameo uh on election night about how you know we it they stole it kind of thing i got lewandowski doing just a cool read in it um the boss is in it so um the people have fun with that but uh yeah, go, go to Amazon and go to your booksellers, support your local bookstore, and hopefully they're not too woke to keep the book out there. And uh, It's great talking to you. Ohio, uh, near and dear to me, I, I uh, was in there, uh, debuted my Death by China film Barnstorm in Ohio back uh, before the um, – the romney debacle election oh, gosh. Um, and, um, <laughs> there's a lot of good ohio scenes in it but anyway great talking to you and um there it is in trump time
1: yeah i look forward. i look forward to talk, i could talk to you again like for hours right now but i know you have yeah. other interviews i'd love to talk to you down the road uh, peter but thanks so much for being on here and uh, again in trump time go check that out i'm looking forward to having a copy of, my, of it myself peter thanks again yeah. so much
0: Uh, All right. Keep waking up the woke out there.
1: I will do so. Thanks, Peter. It's Tony Mazur here, and I'm joined once again by U.S. Senate Senate candidate, and uh, he's also the author of Hillbilly Elegy. And I also want to talk about his new book that's going to be coming out in a couple of months. I'll do that a little bit later, but it's J.D. Vance here on the show again. And uh, J.D., uh, good to have you back on again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tony. So, J.D., I want to talk, talk because you've been making the rounds, especially on Fox News and a couple other uh, media outlets and everything. And one thing that's interesting about your story is how you went from small-town Ohio, and then you went to the military, and you moved to the coast and everything, and now you've come back to Ohio. And I was thinking about this, how the how politics has become so, uh, I, I guess, national focused that when you have the local elections, your local mayor's race or your local whatever, councilman, and they kind of go unnoticed, but everybody focuses so much every four years or every couple, two years when you have uh, uh, some of the other elections. But it, uh, talk a little bit about you coming back home and that impact on having more of a local feel to these elections, as opposed to the focus, what it seems to have been in the last decade, where it seems everybody's so focused on the national presidential election.
2: Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point. And, you know, so, so, yeah, my, you know, my story very briefly is, grew up in Middletown, served in the Marine Corps, went to Ohio State. Uh, left left the state to go to law school at you Yale, know, and then and then sort of bounced around for a few years before moving back home and launching a business here uh, in Cincinnati, which is you know the closest closest big city to Middletown, which is where I grew up. And you know I, I definitely agree with you that sometimes a lot of these elections take on uh, too national of a flavor. At least we focus too nationally. You know, obviously, that's a big risk in a Senate election just because the issues are fundamentally national. You're basically representing the people of Ohio on a national stage and, and on federal questions. But you know, as you know, and, and I think most of your listeners know, uh, a big part of the job of being a senator is actually just representing people well. And so, you know, I, I reminded this a couple of weeks ago. A kid reached out to me uh, because his mom, who had a had a letter from her doctor uh, that she shouldn't get the COVID vaccine because it, it might cause some adverse health problems for her, um, was was about to get fired from her job at Ohio State. And and a big part of the job of being a senator is just representing constituents with issues like that, where you know, maybe a phone call or maybe, you know, your your network or your Rolodex can be put to work to actually help the people of the state. And, you know, it's not as, it's not as sexy. It doesn't get nearly as much press or nearly as much attention, but everything from, you know, writing service academy letters and interviewing your constituents about who gets to go to the Naval Academy or West Point or so forth. Like, a lot of what we do is very local, and so I think it's important to bring it back uh, to the people of Ohio because that is ultimately what this election is about.
1: I think that's uh, you're seeing a little bit of that change too, because now that the school boards are finally getting a little bit of uh, a little bit of heat from some of these parents, that that focus has kind of swung back around, and you're looking. It almost seems like we ignored these local elections, and then we wake up one day and we're like, "Wait a second, what are these?" what are these schools teaching our children right now? What is going on in our schools? And then you look and they're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have sat home on election day. Maybe if I was actually at the polls, we would have had a different curriculum in school. Instead, you have critical race theory, critical gender theory, and and all of this that's been going on. And that's why a lot of these parents are starting to rise up and wake up to the, to the point where I, we need to really start focusing locally as opposed to, like, it does it really matter who the president is? I think we need to have that focus on the local mayor's race all the way up to statewide where you have the governor's race coming up next year and the Senate race.
2: Yeah, you know, of course, I think all these things matter, right? I mean, they, they all matter in their own way. And so, you know, it certainly really does matter who your local mayor is. It really does matter who your governor is. And it really does matter who your president is. Um, I, you know, I'm reminded of that famous Norman Rockwell painting where you have a guy sort of standing up in the middle of a town hall and and giving a little speech and there are people behind him listening. And one of the things our founding fathers really loved about this country um, and and observers like, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville loved about this country is that Americans were really into self-government. And and self government isn't something that happens mostly at the national stage. It is something that happens at the local stage, and it's one of the reasons why I think you know I've, I've called for Attorney General Merrick Garland to resign is because this is a guy who's basically using the people's government to go after them for participating in, in like you said those school board meetings, those school board elections, pushing back against the gender ideology, against the critical race theory. This is sort of the thing that worked best and 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 was one of the proudest parts of our national tradition. And you have an attorney general right now who's trying to suppress it and destroy it. I I think it's actually backfiring. I think the more that the federal government goes after these parents for engaging in what's happening at their schools, the more engaged the parents are. And thank God for that.
1: And we've kind of seen that swing back around as well with the vaccine passports, So you in Ohio, for example little bit more open than it's been in other states, such as New York and California. Uh, but back in, what, about mid to late May, they announced the dropping of the mask mandates and the social distancing, and every other table at the restaurant had to have tape over it and plexiglass barriers. You can still have that, and, and you can still get your vaccine, you can still get your wear your mask everywhere, but it wasn't mandated anymore, and that's where you kind of came in, and this whole process where everyone's talking about you know, oh, they want to ban vaccine ma- mandates. Well, yeah, not saying that you shouldn't get a vaccine, not saying you shouldn't wear a mask, but it's the mandate that's been one of the problems. And you've been very vocal about that in making sure that Ohio is not one of these states that has these crippling mandates, especially for these businesses with this situation with the president and OSHA when it comes to the hundred employees or more that they need to have that mandated with their company.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I think it should be people's choices. And that's that's one of the things we should do as fellow citizens is actually respect one another to make informed decisions in a way that's good for the community, but also good for the individual and the family. And that's one of the things I hate about these mandates is it basically turns us against each other, uh, basically turns us into like, you know, dogs that have to be ordered around by our government or by our our corporate leaders instead of citizens capable of making free choices. You know, just as I, I come out pretty strongly against the vaccine mandates and the vaccine passports, I just heard so many stories from people uh, where I I think the media has this mental image of like, you know, middle class people who live in rural parts of the world who hate the vaccine. And, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that. It's people Um, You know, maybe they got the vaccine themselves, but they really don't want it for their kids. Or maybe they have an underlying health problem where they don't think the vaccine is good for them and their doctor agrees with them. Or maybe, you know, they've already had COVID themselves. They have natural immunity and they don't want to get the vaccine for this reason. I I think this is why we should let these decisions be made by uh, by individuals. And this is especially true. In a world where our, our public health authorities and our leaders have done such a bad job in this pandemic, I mean, I sometimes get whiplash thinking about all of the different guidance we've had. You know, first, masks, masks were terrible, and then masks were necessary. You know, you, like first, the vaccines were the Trump vaccine, they wouldn't work, they were being rushed. And now, of course, everybody has to take the vaccine or you'll get fired from your job. Like The the constant back and forth from our public health authorities makes me think that a lot of their decrees are more about politics, and in that world especially, we should be letting individuals make their own decisions, not letting politicized bureaucrats force everything on everybody.
1: Well, and it's the messaging, too, where they hide behind the science, and from what a lot of people have said is that if you start mixing science and medicine with politics, you get Politics. (laughs) Politics. <laughs> That's, what it's That's right. So, so the mixed messaging from the beginning, like you said about, hey, uh, don't wear masks, and then it was like masks are okay. Then wear two masks and get the vaccine. Okay, the vaccine is ninety nine percent effective. And then all of a sudden, now, now in the last two months, you've seen, at least in my social circles, more people who have been vaccinated have been getting these so called breakthrough cases. So now sure. your your messaging is getting to a point where you're like, okay, well, wait a second. Are these actual vaccines? I thought the vaccines were to eradicate a virus, not be a prophylactic for a little bit. And it's just it's a lot of this has been going on right now. And a lot of people don't know where to turn. So when you have uh, a, a career bureaucrats and essentially politicians, in my opinion, like Dr. Fauci, people look at that and say, I, I can't go for more career politicians. We we voted for Donald Trump. And then you, then Joe Biden, who's been in Congress for half a century, it, it becomes president. When you talk about a career politician, and it, it almost seems like you really are getting to the people of America, like middle America, outside the big cities where are saying this country is unrecognizable from what I grew up with.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, that's right. You know, I mean, um, I think all of us, whether we're, you know, in our, I'm, I'm 37, so I'm in my late 30s or whether in your 70s, one of the crazy things that's happening right now that makes the country unrecognizable uh, is that we really have spiraling crime in a lot of our, even our medium sized cities, you see the murder rate going up, you see, you know, public safety being a real concern. I mean, you know, Cincinnati, where you know, my wife and I love it. We love it here. It's a great town. Uh, but we, we have definitely, the public safety issues here, the last couple of months have entered our conversations in a way they never had um, in in the past couple of years. Uh, you also, you know, one of the things that really bothers me is that America has become a more dependent and less self-sufficient economy, and you see this with all the ships. That are that are in anchor off of our big ports unable to load their goods and i find myself asking how do we get to our, ourselves to a position where critical things that americans need are, are made by foreign countries uh, such that if the ships aren't docking and we don't have anybody download the ships we don't have the stuff that we need i mean this is crazy this is you know we're supposed to be the most prosperous freest and most powerful economy in the history of the world and yet like pharmaceutical ingredients and computer chips and appliance parts these things we have to rely on a regime that hates us to get it it does make the country unrecognizable and unfortunately uh you know but for donald trump this was really a bipartisan thing i mean if you look at the the decision to offshore our supply chains our manufacturing base to make ourselves more dependent on china uh, this is something that most republican and democrat leaders over the past 30 or 40 years were like yeah that's that's perfectly fine uh we'll we'll do free trade with china china will become more like us and it turns out we're becoming more like china
1: I wanted to ask you about that No, You were talking about the supply chain And we're going through that right now And you being from a small town in Ohio And there's a lot of people who are In a very similar situation Where the good cost of goods and services Where you, you might, People might think it's trivial But if Dollar Tree Used to have everything for a dollar And all of a sudden they say We can't keep some items here for a dollar People are reliant on the family dollars The Dollar Generals The Dollar Trees in those small towns And when that stuff goes up along with the costs of other goods and services that that rise on top of the fact that there's so many there's 10 I thought what did I see there was 10 million jobs available right now because people are incentivized to not go back to work. Now you've seen this in small town America where you have people who are reliant on welfare and government assistance and the factories and the industry had left decades ago and people are still kind of trying to figure out how to live life. What is I guess from your perspective what's the solution? What can be done about this?
2: Well, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I mean, first, I I do think that we have to bring a lot of our core manufacturing base to this country. I mean, aside from the jobs, which are very important, right? We want middle class workers to be able to support a family on on one wage, which was possible when my grandparents moved to Middletown, Ohio. But it's harder for a lot of families these days. Um, You also become dependent. And and I think this is the big problem. This is why things at Dollar Tree. uh, This is why. You know beef prices pretty much everything you're buying at the grocery store is sort of going up it's it's because we've become incredibly dependent on other people to make our stuff and that works maybe okay when the economy globally is humming along smoothly uh, but but when the economy hits a rough spot you, you basically turn americans into people who have to bow to the whims of you know china the chinese economy or the mexican economy or whatever country it is that we depend for on our goods. It's not about self sufficiency anymore. It's really about dependence. And I think that's a major, major problem. The flip side is you mentioned all those jobs that are going on, we have an education system, I think right now that loads a lot of students up with a big amount of debt and doesn't give them any useful skills. So you've got people, I think would like to hire and have pretty good jobs available out there to hire people but if the only folks available to work in those jobs, you know, one they haven't worked in 10 years, those are you know, very hard folks to get reengaged with the workforce or two, you know, a 22, 23-year-old kid who just graduated from college with $60,000 worth of debt and no useful skills, like that puts our small businesses in a really tough spot too. So it's it's a long-term issue, but we got to fix our manufacturing issue on the one hand, we got to fix our education system on the other hand, especially after high school
1: want to ask you a, c- a couple more questions. Uh, I won't keep you too much longer. Uh, kind of off topic a little bit, but uh, you know, in the last few months and I've been noticing this trend on social media where talking about the military and you're somebody who has served in our military and I, I saw somebody who was a prominent account, I don't remember it, said that I-, I don't believe that the United States will win if they were to get into another major war, uh, that they could win it. And since i last spoken with you, you had the a really disastrous pullout in Afghanistan that that happened and pulling the military out before the civilians. It just, it was a disaster. And it, it, while at the same time you have General Mark Milley who's talking about critical race theory and, and white rage and wanting to understand white rage and, and talking about gender theory in the, in the military and I'm like, well, this isn't the U.S. military that I think any of us even remember. It really is, and, and I know it's a pejorative term, but saying that the military Military has kind of gone woke right now. What is your perspective for somebody who has actually served in our armed forces?
2: Well, I agree with it, unfortunately, and our leadership has definitely gone woke, and it's unfortunate because the military was one of the few institutions in this country that both sides of America, that both Republicans and Democrats still had some faith in. Uh look, look I mean, I the, the two things that have that I've noticed is you have the General Milley, like you said, talking about white rage. While Afghanistan turned into a complete disaster scenario, and I saw just a couple of days ago a, a major U.S. military general—they're all—I mean—they're all important. There's so few generals out there. Was was she was complaining about the manicure policy of the U.S. military for not letting you know the military? I guess didn't like her particular manicure that she had chosen. I know something about the way that her fingernails looked. Uh, you know, compare these people to General George S. Patton. Right. Was George S. Patton complaining because the military regulations were too hard on his fingernails? Of course not. This is ridiculous. We've gotten ourselves into a situation where a lot of our military leaders have have realized that the way to advance themselves is by using woke progressive lingo instead of by winning battles and making sure we stay ahead of the curve technologically. And, And by the way, Afghanistan, of course, was a terrible, terrible disaster, but maybe even a bigger story for the long term. Is it looks like the Chinese have finally uh, figured out how to deliver a low altitude hypersonic missile uh, that very well could evade our missile defense system. So the Chinese are out there trying to get ahead of us technologically, trying to fight and win wars. Our generals are complaining about whatever's on MSNBC that day. Uh,
1: it just it, it's it was infuriating watching that and watching helicopters and people falling off of helicopters. And, and and then again, being told white rage is the problem and hearing every morning and on the front page of The New York Times about January 6th. And you're listening like there. There are a lot of other issues right there. But you really just the media is speaking into their narrative at this point.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's that, you know, this is one of the big issues I've realized about the media. It's exactly your point about January 6th. It's not so much about truth as it is about focus. I mean, okay, so January 6th happened. And my view is that, you know, yeah, there were clearly a few bad guys there. It looks honestly like there may have been some FBI informants among the bad guys. But whoever the bad guys were absolutely punished them. But there were not there was not this massive insurrection. It's not like most people there were trying to overthrow the government. I think it's slanderous to say that they were, but okay, January the 6th happened, but the way the media manipulates us, I think is by the focus, right? It's the constant focus, the idea that this is the only thing happening as the rest of the country burns. And I think that's the way in which we're all subject to this really weird propaganda, uh, is, is not by being told outright lies, by having one thing happen you know the the murder of george floyd and sort of january 6th incident and having that blown up to be the only thing that we talk about and the media tries to tell us it's suggestive of our entire society when really, very often, it's an isolated incident that we shouldn't draw too much, uh, too many lessons from.
1: While well, billions of dollars of damage have happened in Portland, sh- uh, Seattle, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, all across the the United States in the last year and a half due to protests and antifa, but we're still focused on Charlottesville on January six. That's amazing. Exactly. Uh, Hey JD, before I let you go, uh, you know you're, you have a real big success story of somebody who grew up in such a small town that a lot of people can relate to, to making it big in the tech world and uh, and serving in our uh, military. And you know, regardless of what happens in this election uh, in in the Senate, that you've been somebody who has been guided through your journey through faith. Uh, I, just talk a little bit about that because you don't really hear too much about. Uh, really, I, I think it seems like Christianity and. Uh, and especially with everything, like, I, I, I'm a Catholic, and I saw what the, the Pope has been putting out there, a lot of this social justice stuff. It's just, it's really bothersome. It. And for me, personally, it's tried my faith, and I've had to look deep into who I am. And you've had a lot of uh, hiccups and bumps along your journey as well, but you've stayed true to your Christian faith through this. Talk a little bit about that, if you can.
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's an important question. And I think like a lot of kids who, you know, grew up in a particular faith, uh, went off to school, started to to maybe think it was a little a little wrong or a little in, incomplete or inadequate. And so I, I kind of like got away from my faith a little bit. And then, you know, really, as I became successful in a worldly sense, you know, my, my sort of business was going well, I had all these fancy degrees and the book was doing well. Yeah, you know, I, I started to think that, you know, the world was not forcing me to ask difficult questions about the really important stuff. And the important stuff is not where you went to school or how much money you made. The important stuff is, are you, are you a good husband? Are you a good father? Are you a good man? Are you a good member of your community? And I, and I realized the more that more than I thought about some of these deeper questions, I think all of us reach a point in our life where we're asking ourselves those deeper questions. Uh, I realized that the best answer to those questions was provided by the Christian faith that I'd grown up in. And so, you know, I, I know you're a Catholic. I actually became a Catholic convert in part because I, you know, just felt very comfortable in that particular uh, branch of Christianity. But, you know, I, 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 I think that the, the argument that I'd make is, is that my faith really forced me to reckon with what's actually important in life. And I, and I worry, frankly, in a world where fewer and fewer people are actively engaged in the faith, um, do, do we become a country where folks are too focused on what's worldly or they're too focused on these external markers of success or achievement or happiness and, and not really thinking, like, how do I cultivate character in myself, uh, in my family? Uh, I, I think that's one of the great things that the Christian faith provides for us as people and, and provided for America for, you know, our, our multi-century history. And I, I do worry about what our country looks like if we lose our attachment to our faith. You know, John Adams famously said uh, the Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. And we should keep that in mind as we think about how to reform our political system. We've also, I think, got to think about how to reform our culture, too.
1: I've truly maintained this over time that, and I've said this a lot on the show, is we are, as human beings, I believe, uh, religious people. It just depends on what religion it is, and not necessarily an organized religion. That's where I think a lot of people have fallen into the uh, you know, propaganda, I guess, of the science, because there's a difference between science and the science. And it seems that, uh, you know, we're looking for searching for that. That answer we 're searching for what it 's going to be who who we are, and I think people are looking in different ways, and some of those ways are just not necessarily beneficial towards uh, you know to what we can do, but it 's how we are able to apply that going forward, and you know, that 's why I, I wish you the best of luck going forward here with um With your campaign and everything, because this is, uh, uh, you know, it's a very important time. And for having somebody in Ohio that you kind of need somebody who knows what it's like to be from Ohio and speak to the people that aren't just in Cincinnati, Cleveland, Columbus, Akron, you can actually talk to the people in those cities and counties in between.
2: Yeah, that's what we're trying to do, and obviously we're, we're trying to run to, to represent all the people in the state, and uh, it's I think it is very important to have a perspective on parts of our state that often don't get the same amount of media attention. That's definitely one of the things I bring to the race, and I hope people think about supporting me.
1: Well, I appreciate you coming on, J.D., and uh, thanks so much. And I, I'm looking forward to talking to you down the road here.
2: Thanks, Tony. Take
1: oh, care. By the way, uh, I, I'm not recording right now. Did you see that Colin Powell just passed away?
2: Oh, I didn't see that. Died of oh, COVID,
1: fully vaccinated. Died of COVID. It actually, just broke
2: one minute ago. Oh wow! Goodness gracious! Oh, that's gonna that's gonna really transform the way people think about these vaccines. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, this is yeah, this is. I mean, you know, God rest his soul. I actually met him a couple times. He's uh, you know obviously disagreed with his political drift, but was a very good man, a good public servant. Um, but like, wow, this is going to really be major, major news.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'll let you know if if you're going to talk to somebody. But uh, again, hey, thanks so much for coming on. I look forward to talking.